and we knew it was going to be hot, but we had no idea it was going to end up as hot as it did get. It ended up measuring up to 38 at certain points on the course at the aid stations and 33 in the shade. That was Kim Seneschal, and this is episode 45 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. There are a few things I love more than a good race debrief. So if you're like me, you are in for a treat today. My co-host, Kim Seneschal, breaks down her recent Sinister 7 50-mile race in Alberta, the first in-person race she has run in almost two years. As if running 50 miles isn't hard enough, this race was actually closer to 51 and a half miles. It had over 9,000 feet of elevation gain, and Kim completed this on the heels of moving two provinces over from the prairies, incurring crazy hail damage to her new house, starting a new job, and battling 38 degree heat. We get into what she did differently in her training to prepare for Sin 7, where her mindset was at going in, what was different regarding COVID, what steps she took to avoid falling victim to the unusually high DNF rate, and how her recovery is going. It was really fun to have Kim on the other side of the mic this week, answering questions and passing along the wisdom she's gained through years and years of ultra running. And now on to my conversation with Kim Seneschal. Well, it's the beginning of a new era. This is the very first time we're seeing each other face-to-face with you uh, being an Albertan. Uh, How does it feel? Oh, it feels weird, to be honest. I still have to kind of like kick myself going, (laughs) I actually live in Calgary now. Like I'm an Albertan. Again, after 20 some odd years. Yeah, well, a lot has gone on since we've last caught up. So yeah, you've moved a couple of provinces over. How did that whole... Uh, experience go for you? Oh, well, let's just say moving is not one of my most favorite things to do, but it went fairly uneventfully. You know, I hired a moving company, my stuff showed up on time and nothing was broken. That said, uh, we arrived in Calgary on July 1st and July 2nd, we had like a massive hailstorm here. And my second day with my new house, Yeah, I had to put an insurance claim because one whole side of my house has like tennis ball to fist sized holes in it. Oh my gosh. You posted the pictures on social media and I'm like, what are the odds you poor thing? Like you move into this new house and like immediately have to put in an insurance claim. It's just not fair. (laughs) Yep. We literally, the unmoving truck arrived like at 830 they were done by 1230. And then I spent the rest of the afternoon taping holes and patching holes mm. in my house <laughs> and climbing on the roof to patch the vents. And there's places I still couldn't see. But anyways, I will have an adjuster come out. And you know, it's just part of the drama of my life. Like, kind of. Yeah, I guess so. But moving is stressful enough. And then to add something like that on the top of it, it's just... It just doesn't seem fair. But like you said, there's always surprises with everything. And um, but, but I didn't have any broken windows. A lot of my neighbors had broken windows. Okay. So I okay. I myself lucky there. There yeah. was a silver lining. Yes. <laughs> so what's the best part about being back? 
Well, it's interesting you asked that question, Carolyn, because just this weekend, I was in the mountains for a race, which we're going to talk about very shortly. Yes, we are. I want all the details. Yes, but I specifically commented on the way home from that race. I'm like, I can't believe I live two hours from a place where I can run a race like this in the mountains. I don't have to fly anywhere. I don't have to drive for three days. I live like you know, an easy minimal distance to, to awesome mountains and racing locations. And so that's awesome. Yeah. And I'm in the same time zone as my family again. Yeah. And there's no PST. So, you know, there's <laughs> lots of awesomeness to living in Alberta. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> well, I'm sure there are, that's awesome. Lots of comforts yeah. of, of home. And how long has it been since you've lived there? Must be a long time since you've been in Alberta. I left to go to university in Michigan when I was 20. So that was 1997. Oh my gosh. So it has been like 24 years. Yeah. Well, looking at your pictures from the race, and I know we're going to really dig into this race here, but like it almost seems like it's a different country or something. Like it's just so the landscape Mm -hmm. is just couldn't be any more different than it is here in Manitoba. And it is beautiful. So I'm really happy for you. I'm happy that you're home and I'm happy that you get to be closer to the things and the people that you love. Yeah. Well, thank you. And you know what? It is, it is mixed. There's beautiful places wherever you live. Manitoba definitely has its beauty and it has its people, which I already miss, Mm -hmm. but I will not lie in saying that there's something about the mountains, there's something about the alpine line, that magical Mm. line where the trees disappear and the wildflowers appear and the rock is above you. Well, we'll get into that in a little bit, but that's what I experienced this weekend. And even, I call it run drunk, even when I was like completely marshmallow head, I just had to stop and just take in the beauty. It was just amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this race. It's called Sinister Seven, right? Mm-hmm. Can you just tell us yeah. a little bit about, it was July 12th, you you did it on, correct? Yeah, two days ago. Two yeah. days ago. Um, so what is Sinister Seven? Tell any listeners that aren't uh, familiar with this event, uh, what it's all about. Well, I am by no means an expert. I know the people that have been to that race for decades could, could, probably say it better than I do, but Sinister 7 is a hundred, It you know, it originated as a hundred mile race. Um, it can be run solo or in teams of up to seven. Um, and the racers have 30 hours to complete the event, which is actually a really tight cutoff for a hundred miler of that type of course profile. The course is split into seven stages and each stage has you know, it's challenges. There's, there's really exposed hot sections. There's serious climbing sections, but, um, the race also, the name is inspired by seven sisters mountain, which you can see from a large part of the course. And Mm. the part that I did in the 50 miler goes around crow's nest mountain and seven sisters mountain and the 50 miler. This is the first year they've had a 50 mile event, which I was really happy about because to be honest, I knew I was not up for a hundred. But 50 miles gave me enough of a taste of the course to definitively be humbled and to realize why they call it the Sinister Seven. Yes. <laughs> it, it is hard for sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into some of um, what makes this course difficult and particularly on this day where it was so dang hot. But yeah. 
tell us about your preparation. I know even back when you were living here, you were, you know, looking ahead and thinking about the training for this and you did some very specific things in this buildup. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah, I'd like to share some things in this podcast that I believe worked for me quite well. And and I can't say again that they'll work for everybody or that I did anything perfectly, but I definitely did a few things that I was pleasantly surprised what a difference I believe they made. And maybe somebody might pick up something that helps them. So if anybody remembers the last time we connected in our quarterly update, I was dealing with a bit of a foot niggle, foot injury. And so I really backed off my training quite a bit in the early spring and then just re- resumed it with a gradual buildup up to, I did a few 26 milers for about 40 to 45 K runs. And then I, I did end up doing one 40 mile run um, on the Monterio Trail with some friends uh, three weeks before Sinister. So that was kind of my buildup in training. That said, I can't say I was running high volume. Like I wasn't doing a huge volume during the week because I was just too busy getting ready to mm-hmm. move. Yeah. Uh, I probably maxed it 50 to 60 miles a week. Um, but really one of the big things that I did differently was heat training, very mm-hmm. intentional heat training. So in Manitoba, we don't have mountains, we don't have elevation, but we have a lot of heat. And we had some hot, oh hot my days gosh, did we ever... in, in like eight April, early May, like 38, 37 degrees mm-hmm. early in the spring. And heat training is kind of, they call it like the poor man's altitude training. Like it, <laughs> it, it's, it induces similar blood changes, like an increase in plasma and EPO in your blood that altitude training does. And so it, it can be a good way to kind of make up for that lack of altitude. Mm-hmm. So when I first moved to Manitoba from Vancouver Island, I was so soft and I couldn't handle winter. And I finally, after two years of suffering said, I'm going to make my mess my mission and I'm just going to like get so damn good at winter that I'm going to love it. And I like became a Wim Hof advocate and I like just decided I was going to rock at winter. Yeah. And actually I would say last winter I did pretty good with the cold. Like I even ran in shorts the majority of the winter, (laughs) except for maybe one and a half months. So as I was sitting there whining about the heat this spring, I had this kind of aha moment of like, goodness sakes, it's time you'd started dealing with the heat the same way you dealt with the cold rather than avoiding it mm-hmm. and trying to get up super early to get my runs done in the cool of the day. I did the opposite. I purposefully started sleeping in, which worked quite well because I needed more sleep because I was so tired from my life. And you and were working virtually and they're two hours or one hour behind. So that probably... Different time yeah. zone, new job, kids at home homeschooling. Yeah, I was I was definitely needing more sleep than uh-huh. normal. And so I gave it to myself. I said, I want to sleep in until nine o'clock. I'm going to sleep in until nine o'clock. Yeah. And I go do my runs at like 11 to one or two during the hottest part of the day. And then during the work week, I'd purposefully do my runs at like four to 6 p.m. Again, the mm-hmm. hottest part of the day. Mm-hmm. And my body started to adapt. Like when I first started that, I'd be lucky if I could run a 630 kilometer. Like, like I was like pushing yeah. it. And, you know, about right before I moved, I was running that same effort level at like a 550, 545. Yeah. Which still isn't fast. But when you're training for a 50 mile race, you don't need to. You don't need to be doing that. But my, my point is, 
my pace dropped by almost 45 seconds a kilometer just by the process of adapting to the heat. Mm -hmm. Like my Mm -hmm. body was able to adapt better. Yeah. And the body will adapt. It's an amazing, amazing thing, right? It does. It does. And I didn't start out doing long, long runs in the heat. I started out with shorter runs and then built up the length, right? Yeah. But um, unfortunately, you can't really control the weather. So it'd be nice if the temperature increased solely by two degrees. (laughs) No, it went from like minus 30 to 37 above in like three weeks. It was ridiculous. It was. I'm not exaggerating. It was less than a month. The temperature swung. 60 degrees we yeah. calculated like yep. it was crazy I do remember that and then hill repeats I did hill repeats on spring hill you know a good 120 foot hill over and over and over again and um carrying boxes up and down stairs moving was also pretty good training but that's essentially yep. what I did <laughs> <laughs> okay so this this race and you knew this all along but it came like right on the heels of of your move yeah so Talk to us about your goals going into it. Like, what did you want to get out of this race? Was it different because of all that you've had on your plate for the last few months? Like, sort of talk to us about your mindset and and goals going in. Well, it was different because it's the first in-person trail race. And then on top of that ultra marathon race that has happened Mm -hmm. in you know, the prairies at least in two years. It's the first ultra in Alberta since COVID hit. And so honestly, I was just so stoked to be there. It was just like a massive celebration to actually be going to a real race. The The 50 mile had a really generous cutoff of 24 hours. So you could you could walk the whole thing and, and take long breaks at aid stations and still finish in 24 hours. I d- didn't want it to take that long, <laughs> but I wasn't feeling any time pressure. I just wanted to to complete it. I wanted to kind of get back into the routine of racing and of strategizing. You know, when I was packing for my drop bags, I realized I was packing as I had been for two years where I had to be self-sufficient and carry 100% of everything on my own back. And I had to do this like, wait a minute, there's eight stations. You don't have to carry 15 pounds on your back for this race. (laughs) You know, like it's just a mindset shift after two years of not racing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted to get back in that groove. Um, I wanted to have fun and just see people, see the race community again, spend time in the mountains and of course kind of check out what this infamous Sinister Seven course was all about. And finally, like I I did manage to get into the Canadian death race, which is three weeks minus two days from now. And that is really my A race because it's the Western States qualifier that I need to stay in the lottery. And so I kind of wanted to gauge on my fitness just to see if I even had a hope of of qualifying at CDR. So, And with CDR, when you say it's a Western States qualifier, does that mean you have to qualify like within a certain time or does that just mean you have to finish it? Correct. The overall race cutoff is 24 hours for a uh, Canadian death race. But in order to qualify for Western States, you have to do it in under 23 hours. Okay. So it's one hour shorter than somebody who doesn't care about qualifying has. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Sinister 7, 50 mile or so that's essentially yeah. 80K has a 24 mm-hmm. hour cutoff and then CDR, which 125K. is 125. Yeah. So and, and less really for you, yes. right? Yes. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. You mentioned 
that this is the first race since COVID and I can imagine just how giddy I will be when I get to finally, <laughs> finally race yeah. since oh. uh, how, this year and a half hiatus or whatever it is. What did you notice or what did you find that was different um, in regards to COVID? Like what protocols or, or just sort of talk to us? Did you have to wear a mask at the start and at aid stations? What was different? Yeah, so there wasn't as much different as I actually expected. And a large part of that was because Alberta here has opened up significantly. As of July 1st, masks were no longer required in in public spaces, indoors or outdoors here in the province. That said, Brian Gallant, the the race director and and the crew that organized Sinister 7, still very much tried to make the race as safe as possible. So obviously the whole race is outside, (laughs) but they tried to encourage, you know, in the race itself, no loitering and hanging out Mm. close to where all the food was if you didn't need to be. Crew that were coming at the transition areas to support the runners were encouraged to spread out and like distance. You absolutely could wear a mask. Nobody was judged for wearing a mask, but you didn't have to. Mm -hmm. I've never done the race before, so it's hard for me to compare, but I got the perception that was potentially less food options at the aid station tables just because of the, you know, communal nature. Mm -hmm. They didn't want hands digging in bowls and, and they were very careful to hand out like almost like buffet style where they were serving you rather than you serving yourself. Mm -hmm. Fair. Yeah, at the at the pre-race meeting, that was kind of weird. Like it was awesome, but it was felt very odd. It was my first time being in a group like there were over 500 people in this race in this arena without masks. And I just, it was just kind of, it felt so normal. I posted something in my Insta story. I was like, I can't believe how normal this feels. Like all of a sudden it was like overnight. We're kind of like, we're back. Yeah. So, but I never ever felt unsafe or, you know, um, at risk. I Mm -hmm. mean, part of it was we were just blissed out on endorphins the entire time, but. Did um, you have to take a COVID test and and have a negative COVID test at all? No, no. Yeah, Alberta actually isn't going to have pass vaccine passports and they don't have a quarantine requirement coming into the province. There are differences like if you have two vaccinations and you are in close contact with somebody with COVID, you don't have to quarantine unless you become symptomatic. So there, you know, there every province has mm-hmm. their rules, but um no, you if you registered and signed up, you could do the race. So hmm. All right. Yeah. Good to know. That's that's yeah. interesting to hear you say it all felt normal, like because I'm still haven't gone to anything that, you know, is at remotely reminiscent of a, a large gathering. And so I always think, oh, yeah, it's going to feel so weird. But that's interesting that it might just feel like 2019 again. <laughs> yeah. The only time I really felt like it was a large gathering was at that pre-race mm-hmm. meeting. Mm-hmm. Other than that, you know, when you spread even a couple hundred runners out over a 50 to a hundred mile course, you're yeah. only tight for the first minute. <laughs> and then everybody spreads out and you're lucky if you even see people for half an hour sometimes. Yeah. On these courses. So, like we talked about that before, yeah, like how yeah. ultras almost lend themselves to social distancing in that Absolutely. way, right? Yeah. You're outdoors, yeah. you're going off and on a hundred mile route, you're bound to spread mm-hmm. out and it's kind of yeah. uh, other than little single track stuff at the beginning. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Let's dig into the race now. 
you knew going in <laughs> that it was going to be really hot. I'm sure you'd been looking at the weather and looking at the weather and going, oh, no. Yeah. So tell us about your race plan. Like what changed about your race plan because of the forecast? And then um, how did it go on the execution side? Well, yeah, we were definitely looking at the weather from the two weeks out. As soon as the weather apps would give us a 14-day prediction, we were checking the weather. And we knew it was going to be hot, but we had no idea it was going to end up as hot as it did get at certain points on the course. Because they give you temperatures that are in town or, you know, central locations, but you get into these, these you know, canyons, for lack of a better word, or really exposed mountainsides. It was predicted to get up to 28 that day, and it ended up measuring up to 38 at certain points on the course at the age stations and 33 in the shade. So just to put it into perspective, there was total cornerage with this race. In a 100-mile event, they had a 75% did not finish rate. Only 35 people finished the 100-miler. I don't think I've ever heard of a DNF rate that high. (sighs) Yeah, it's... This race is known to have a high DNF rate, but that's pretty high. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them dropped out before even the halfway mark. Like it just got so hot early in the day that people either got bonafide heat stroke or heat exhaustion, or they just timed out. Like they knew there was no way they could possibly finish at the pace they were going. So they just pulled. But so. Wow, that's scary actually. (laughs) What did I do? Other than knowing that it was going to be hot and starting to strategize a bit for that, I almost think part of what saved me is I didn't mentally prepare. It was kind Mm. of a catch 22. I didn't mentally prepare in some ways, which wasn't good, but in other ways, I didn't, it didn't stress me out. Mm -hmm. I wasn't obsessed with panicking because I didn't have time to worry about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Fair. So I had my strategy. I didn't stress. I didn't obsess. It is what it is. I got there and yeah, sometimes what you don't know is, is good. So I had no idea it would get to 38, which was a good thing because otherwise I probably really, really would have freaked out. I think the biggest thing was pacing. So I had observed, you know, like Western States just happened like, what, three weeks ago and very hot course, kind of observed what happened there. The people that were successful, I um, really just accepted it was going to be slower during the hottest parts of the day and slowed down and then maximized their potential in the cooler parts of the day or Mm -hmm. the cooler parts of the course. And so that's what I decided I was going to do. It was a 10 a.m. start, which is late. I've never started an ultra Mm -hmm. that late before. And I knew it was going to get hot immediately. So without your chance for your body to kind of adjust to that, it's kind of like, you know, what they say, you put a frog in a slowly boiling pot and it doesn't know to jump out, but if you just throw it in at once, it's like a shock. (laughs) So it's like kind of like that analogy. Yeah, we, we got out there and it's like, oh my God, it just hit us how hot it got so fast. And I was actually really worried because I was slowed to a walk within the first 15K, like the first 20K were probably the hardest of the race for me. It was so hot. I was dizzy. I was lightheaded. I was started to count steps. I was like, okay, 50 running steps, 50 walking steps, 50 running steps, 50 walking steps. You can't just walk at 20K in the rest of this race. Like you have to keep running. And I was sleepy. I've never been so sleepy during a race. Like I Mm. literally, like you nod your head off when you're driving. That's what I was doing while I was running. And I knew it was going to be a hard day and I better respect that it was super freaking hot. So 
it was what it was. The next thing I did was when I got into the transitionaries, I had a friend crewing for me and he brought ice and that was like a lifesaver. So first chance I could, I packed ice everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like I had ice in my bra, ice in my arm sleeves, Mm -hmm. ice in my pack. I like, I had, I don't know how many pounds of ice on me. So cooling my core was, was a big thing. And I want to talk about that a little bit next. So at a critical point in the race where we started to see people like laying under trees along the course and just sitting, just sitting in the dirt (laughs) in the little bits of shade that they could get because it was still very exposed at that point. We passed the first, was probably about 30K in, the the first decent-sized creek that you could submerge yourself in. And I just made a beeline down to that creek. Another girl was just ahead of me and she was doing the same thing. We were just like fixated on this creek and we just like laid down fully in this creek. Nice. <laughs> and I, I kept my feet sticking out because I really wanted my feet to stay dry. And um, you just laid there until I felt like my core was cooler. And then there was another creek like that about maybe 5K later. And I really believe that was the turning point for me. I could actually run after that. Hmm. Um, and this was now probably about 3.30 in the afternoon. So it, I knew it was going to start getting cooler within a few hours. Yeah. So I thought if I can just keep my core temp down, I'll be okay. Yep. And that was bliss. Like nice. that was the best thing. And after that, every creek I passed, splashed water in my arm sleeves, splashed water on my face. I took my hat off and dunked it, got mm-hmm. my hair wet, like just kept my skin cool, mm-hmm. which was really it is really important. Like skin temp is a, is a big yep. thing for women, at least when it comes to cooling your body. You asked me this question a little bit ago and I made some notes, so I'm just going to keep going if that's okay. Keep going. <laughs> no, this is fascinating. Another thing that I did that I've always struggled with is, is my hydration. And I tend to, in, in these hot, dry, it was windy too. It was very windy. So it was a very dry day. I tend to drink too much. I te- I've had mm-hmm. hyponatremia before really bad. So probably around the same 30K mark, I remember looking down at my hands and they were puffy. Like they were bonafide puffy, not just heat puffy, like too puffy. And I was like, oh, Uh -oh. shoot. (laughs) And the problem with those kind of days is your mouth feels so dry that you think you're thirsty and you want to keep drinking. Like all you want is just to guzzle cold water. Yeah. But your body doesn't need that much water. Yeah. It can only absorb about a cup an hour, right? One, 250 to 500 mils an hour. So I had to very consciously force myself not to guzzle water and to drink my electrolyte drink. I used Tailwind. I did two to three salt tabs an hour. I made sure that I did at the aid stations wet snacks like watermelon and oranges and bananas because if I had anything dry I had the temptation to wash it down with a whole bottle of water right Right. so it's like I can't do that so it was like so hard to like not let myself drink when that's all I wanted but I knew my body didn't need all that water so yeah making sure that I chose like electrolyte I had one bottle of water one bottle of tailwind and then my bladder was full of ice water Mm-hmm. And I kind of rotated and made sure I used lots of electrolytes. So it took about three hours and the puffiness went away. I got that under control. So I was happy about that. 
Good on you for noticing that though. Oh, I learned my lesson the first time. That yeah. first belt with hyponatremia was serious. Like it scared yeah. me. Can you just talk a little bit about hyponatremia? What do you mean? How do you recognize the signs of it? And what's so like, why would you not want to drink water on a hot day? Okay, so absolutely. And I probably should even define what it is. So hyponatremia is low salt content in your blood, too much water. And when you get out of balance, your body can't absorb the water into your bloodstream. So it sits in your gut or it sits in your interstitial tissue and it just it's too dilute, right? Like your, your electrolytes inside your body are too dilute. And so you can actually get hydrocephalus, like brain swelling. You can start to get heart beat, you know, electrical mm -hmm. arrhythmias. You can die. It's from fatal in some cases. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you know, the first time I had it was during the Zion 100 and I gained so much weight. I probably gained 10 to 15 pounds of water. My shorts were tight on my legs I look at pictures of myself and I, I look unrecognizable. And altitude, by the way, also makes you more prone to getting hyponatremia because right. your body doesn't absorb nutri nutrients in the same way. Yeah. And being female and being in the high hormone phase of your cycle also predisposes you to this. So, you know, TMI, I would have all of those things going on during that race. <laughs> yeah. So I knew I was at a high risk time yeah. and place to have it. And so it was high on my radar. Yeah. You know how I've heard it described before and, and tell me if this resonates with you. So, you know, when you make like the old school Gatorade, like you put the powder and then you're supposed to put like a certain amount of water in with the powder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then let's say you drink half of that bottle, but then you just put more water in it. Right. And then you drink mm -hmm. half of that bottle and then you put more water in it and just keeps diluting the powder yeah. down. So that, yeah. so it's like that where then the water that you're drinking like the, the ratio of the electrolytes and the salt and all that inside your cells to outside, it doesn't lend itself to getting that fluid inside your cells. Is that sort of how you understand exactly. it? Exactly. It's that your body can't absorb it. Yeah. 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 That's exactly it. And you know, um, I got to put a shout out to the book Roar here. You recommended it to me a while ago and I've been listening to it as I do with all my books a couple times. And she really talks in there about hydration doesn't mean drinking water. Yes. You can drink pure water and not be hydrated Yes, because it doesn't get into your cells. Yes. You need to have a, like a smidgen of salt, a little bit of electrolyte minerals in that water so that your body can absorb it well. On that note, actually, I also forgot salt is best absorbed into your system when it's combined with glycogen, with mm -hmm. glucose. Mm -hmm. And so I really tried to make an attempt to take my salt pills with my snacks, yep. with my spring energy. Historically, I've done spring every 45 minutes and salt on the hour, but I just started combining them. Every 45 yep. minutes, I just combine it with the salt pill and that worked much better for me. I think in Roar, didn't she say um, hydration in your bottle and fuel in your pocket? Like yeah. I, there was some little yeah. catchy thing that it's like you yeah. should be eating your food and drinking your electrolytes and, and water, right? Yeah. Like not yeah. putting a ton of calories into your yeah. water bottle, which a lot of people do, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. It's, you know, everybody's an experiment of one. And I think at every age and in you are, you know, your body changes and your the terrain changes, but I've definitely learned like I have my watch set to beep. Like I, I'm so rigid with my hydration and my nutrition schedule. I've just learned I have to be like mm -hmm. you suffer. Mm -hmm. And I did have, 
I had no nausea during this race until the very, very end when I always stop paying attention to this stuff because I'm almost done. Then I get nauseated in like the last half hour. (laughs) But like I had really felt like I had that whole thing dialed in, even Mm. if with it being so hot, which was... That's a huge win. Yeah. And it looked like on social media that you met a new friend. Can you tell us about that? (laughs) Yeah. So the first half of the race was a complete suffer fest, but a nice twist of events found me running. So I met some cool people at the race and um, this lady named Tamara uh, and I hooked up at about the 40k mark at just as we were headed up leg six so leg six is what i've heard and i have only seen the last half of the course but it was definitely the most beautiful part of the course for me we go up and around like i said crow's nest mountain and seven sisters mountain and then back down into the alpine you know above the alpine line and then we come back down the back side and we did that in the evening so it was starting to get cooler and we found we were just moving together we started chatting getting to know each other we ended up doing the entire last half of the race together and um got to know each other's entire life story as you tend to do when you're out there hallucinating in the forest with a stranger and um yeah if, as it turns out we're going to be doing cdr together and you're uh, not together but you know we're both yeah. going to be there in a few weeks. And these are the great things that happen on ultras is you just, it's such a niche world that when you happen a lot upon people doing the same thing you're doing, you already have so much in common just by being in that place. Good point. That it's, it's, you find you have even more things in common yeah. as you, as you just spend Aww, time on the trail together. So cool. Yeah. Well, will there be anything, any lessons learned from this one that you'll bring with you into CDR in a, in a few weeks? That's a really good question. I actually swore I wasn't going to do CDR yesterday, and now today. <laughs> Aren't you in that little window of time where you're not supposed yeah, to make any major decisions? <laughs> I already registered for it. That's the problem. But no, I actually feel really good. Like I didn't have any blisters. That, so that's that's another thing that um, I'm going to definitely do again at CDR. I use Leucotape to tape my feet and... I would manage to keep them fairly dry around all the mud puddles, but in that heat, your feet still sweat and get macerated. And um, I changed socks with um, baby powder in them three Mm. times throughout the race. So all of those things, my feet did really well. So I'm going to do that again at CDR for sure. I don't know how hot it's going to be there. So I think I'm just going to... Just keep doing what you're doing. And and what kind of, um, what do you do in between now and then? Because there is only a few weeks. So is it just kind of maintenance mode? Like how often will you run? Will you do long runs? Like what? It's recovery. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's almost like, you know, if you do a lot of racing, your races become Mm -hmm. almost training for the next one. Mm -hmm. Right. So I kind of am teaching and treating this race as my peak for CDR. So I'm just going to bike do a lot of rolling, Mm -hmm. some walking, maybe some light runs in the next 10 days. But one thing that I keep reminding myself close to these big races is what are you going to regret most on race day? Are you going to regret not training enough? Are you going to regret not recovering enough? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I definitely at this summer am going to regret not recovering enough more than not training enough. Yeah. A hundred percent. I want to go in there rested and not inflamed and mentally a little bit more buoyant than I was for Sinister. Mm -hmm. I think 
I need to sit down and do my meditations and my visualizations. I didn't do any of that for Sinister. I just kind of showed up and went, where do I go? Yeah. Okay, follow the flags. <laughs> <laughs> like that was it. <laughs> Which I, I'm never usually so unprepared for these things mentally. but Well, physically yeah. recovering and prepping mentally with, with visualization and meditation, it's sort of those kind of go together in a way. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's good. Do you do anything else to monitor your recovery, like resting heart rate, HRV, anything like that? How do you know when you're back? Hmm, It's interesting you say that because I just got a new watch, the Phoenix 6S. And this thing gives you way too much information, (laughs) like stress level and body battery and yeah, heart HRV, it measures pulse ox, all these things. So you can get so just distracted by uh-huh. all that data I know. I know and I don't even know how valid it all is right. but I do I do measure um resting heart rate for sure and it's it's staying low it didn't spike after this race so I was happy about that I measure my deep sleep if I'm unable to get deep sleep I know something's off mm-hmm. and so I do measure my watch does give me sleep metrics so I do measure that other than that, it's it's actually more just visual. For me, I tend to battle inflammation. And so mm-hmm. I look at if I can see my veins really well and I'm not inflamed, <laughs> that's a good thing. And uh, even after a long day at work, like I come home, my feet will be puffy. So if I can keep the inflammation down, I've been doing turmeric a lot and that helps. So those are, I don't know, it's just kind of a intuition I think most of us that are reasonably in tune with our bodies just kind of know it's like a feeling, right? It's a, you know, when we're talking to Diane Palmason (laughs) the other week, remember, and she was saying like, everything's so high tech now. When I was coaching way back in the day, I just told people to listen to their heart, you know, and it's like, I almost think there's, there's quite a lot of value in some of the old school ways that get you really in tune and in touch. Like, and you're saying your new watch has all this stuff and you can get distracted by it. And to your point, is it even all that valid anyway? Valid. Some, some of the things have been validated, but I wonder about this body battery thing. That seems a little kooky. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, I think just what your, is your run mojo up, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like if I'm not craving a run, if I'm not like edgy <laughs> and, 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 you know, desperate to run, it's a problem before a yeah. big race. Desire to train is yeah. huge. Desire to train yeah. is huge. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. This has been, I, I got all my questions answered. I was really looking forward to this one and we'll maybe have to have you back after CDR. I want to hear all about that one too. Cause you said that's more of your A race, right? That is my A race. However, I've done it before and I've said it before to you that I never tend to do the same race twice. This will be the first race that I've done twice. Yes. Like ever. So it'll be We'll get ready for the mud because didn't we, although has it even been wet? I don't know. We were talking with another, we were talking with Joel Taves, right? About how that Mm -hmm. one's muddy. Yeah, it's it's it'll be muddy no matter what, yeah. I think. But how muddy? I don't know. Yeah. Does it matter? <laughs> I'm gonna still be going through the course. Exactly. So, <laughs> whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks for this. That was, this was a, a lot, lot about me. Oh no. But I guess that's okay. <laughs> There's nothing new with me. <laughs> we'll focus on me another day. This was this was awesome. So good to catch up. Yeah. So I've got to definitely give one book recommendation though, again, is, you know, if you are particularly female, like the book is really written for women, 
definitely check out the book Roar by, help me out, uh, Dr. Stacy Sims. Right. Stacy Sims. And she has a co-author as well. But um, so much good information in there on all of the normal stuff, but also some of the more less known stuff. She talks about the extremes, heat training, cold training, altitude training, pregnancy, running in pregnancy, running perimenopausal, postmenopausal, you know, bone stress, reds. She talks about all of that stuff. It's fascinating. Some uh, amazingly informative chapters. I know. I couldn't believe, like, it's, it's actually a 2016 book and I just couldn't believe I was only getting around to reading it this year. Um, but yeah, timeless, probably a timeless book, although I'm sure she's continuing on and doing all sorts of research and, and updating it and what, whatnot. But yeah, that's a high recommendation from me as well. You know what, Carolyn, before, before we sign off, I really have to say a huge thank you to Brian Gallant and all of the volunteers and the organizers of the Sinister Seven. I can't imagine all of the iterations that they had to plan for the, you know, potential of having a race this last weekend. And I'm so grateful. I was just so stoked to be out there running. Everybody was so friendly. Everybody was having an awesome time, even when they weren't. And I just really have to say thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to race this weekend. I had an awesome time. So thanks. All right. Well, good to see you in your new surroundings. I know the listeners cannot see you, but uh, you've got a whole new background that's very interesting yes. for me to look at. So, uh, <laughs> so welcome, welcome to Alberta, and uh, it was it was great catching up. Yeah, good to talk to you too, Carolyn. Talk to you soon.